Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you coming down to the Quantitude Studios. Mm -hmm. Could you please tell us very briefly a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in working as the unpaid Quantitude intern? I got my PhD from the University of North Carolina. Could I interrupt you briefly? You may. Could you tell us your name, please? Wow. <laughs> We're open and honest here. I'll have to say this is not starting out well. So my name is Ethan McCormick. I am a recent graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the developmental section. I really want to have this unpaid opportunity because I can't get a job anywhere. Ah, <laughs> this is getting clearer for me. Greg, do you have any questions? You're going to participate in today's episode in a manner that will help to inform our decision. Part of your interview process, though, will involve you demonstrating knowledge of things that you don't necessarily know what they're going to be. You have no idea what today's episode is about. Is that correct? That is correct. Randomly speaking, it could be about things like haiku, for example. Could you tell us what you do know about haiku? Um, I think haiku is one of the... I don't know... <laughs> Wow. Dr. McCormick, please get your fingers off of the keyboard. We can see you searching. <laughs> Would you please tell us your current knowledge of haiku, not your ability to look it up in the middle of an interview? If you remember on my resume, it does say that Googling is my primary skill that got me through <laughs> graduate school. Mm. But off the top of my head, I would say that a haiku is a structured form of poetry with a five, seven, five syllable structure on different lines. Let me ask you about another thing. Do you know anything about team science? Yes, I have been a part of several teams doing science. Dr. McCormick, could you please tell us your opinion on whether the pitcher should bat? I think it's a very interesting epistemological problem wherein the pitcher plays a different role according to different league's rules, and that the one that is superior is clearly the one where I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> what are your cultural impressions of a talking lemur? Is this something that you would accept? I don't know. Does it look a lot like Greg? You surprisingly, <laughs> it does. The lemur's a little taller. <laughs> I mean, if it's taller, then that's fine. So, Dr. McCormick, can you tell us what sets you apart from the other applicants that we've had from this position? Did we have other applicants? No. Shut up. Just let him okay, answer. Sorry. I think that my track record of working in unsafe and unsanitary conditions hmm. with you during my PhD <laughs> uh, was quite the experience that should give me the relevant skills, grit, and lack of self-respect to get through this position. So I think we should move to the performance part of the interview. So Dr. McCormick, we're going to ask you to actively participate in today's podcast. We are going to judge every aspect of your behavior, mm -hmm. how you carry yourself, what comes out of your mouth, to what extent you laugh at my jokes versus Greg's. Uh. Just know that as we proceed from here, this is an extraordinarily evaluative and judgment-laden process, and you you should just know that going in. Oh, yeah. Wait, this is a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my teammate, Patrick Axel Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we celebrate International Haiku Day with listener-submitted haikus and somehow tie that to a discussion of team science, all while interviewing intern applicant Ethan McCormick. Along the way, we also mention Googling as research, Cheddar Fries, Big Lima Bean, Mick vs. Mac, Moody Loners in Montana Cabins, English Particle Accelerators, The Boulder Model, A Research Prenup, The Green Room, Getting Voluntold, The Cheese Stands Alone, Quant Poetry Slam, Guns N' Roses, and playing the orchestra. We hope you enjoy today's episode. What are we talking about today? So today on Quantitude, we're celebrating International Haiku Day. Now, technically, International Haiku Day was on April 17th, but we didn't have an episode on April 17th, so we're making it April 20th. We gave our listeners an opportunity to submit some haikus, and submit they did, and we'll be getting to those in just a little bit. April 20th is other things, which we are not celebrating today, but just to acknowledge them, April 20th is National Cheddar Fries Day. Oh, dang. 
Ethan, did you bring cheddar fries? Ooh. Strike one. Ethan, do you see this pile of beans that I have in front of me? <laughs> Throughout the recording session, I'm going to remove one bean. For each time that you have not met our expectations, here is the first bean. Ow. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. It's also National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day. And it is National Lima Bean Respect Day. I despise lima beans. <laughs> that is just driven by big lima bean. I will not participate. I will have cheddar fries on my pineapple upside down cake, but lima beans are out. Ethan, what is your opinion on the lima bean? You are right, Patrick. Ah, the bean goes back. All right. He's a quick learner. <laughs> All right. So we are celebrating National Haiku Day. As Ethan ably Googled in the initial portion of his interview, there are 17 syllables in English form in a 575 structure. The beauty of the haiku, and this is where you're really just going to shed a tear here. The beauty is the way that the three lines work together in harmony, the way they have teamwork in what they can achieve as a whole. And that brings me to the second part of this incredibly well choreographed episode, which is team science. Could I just say for the record, that is unambiguously the worst tie-in that I've seen between a gag and the topic. That the three lines work together as a team? Uh-huh. And there are three of us today. Oh. I don't know whether to put a bean in or take a bean out on that one. <laughs> The question is whether or not, Ethan, you can work together as one of those lines. I wouldn't make you the seven-syllable line, frankly. I'd make you a five-syllable line. I don't know that I'd make you the last one, because the last one really kind of brings it home, and that's a lot of pressure on you. But anyway, yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to meld, in a way that God intended, haiku, team science, and the interview of Ethan, what did you say your last name was? Uh, McCormick. Okay, good. Ethan McCormick. And it's an Irish McCormick, not one of them Scottish McCormicks. So That is, that is incorrect. Uh, okay. Oh. How many beans oh. are there in the pile? Wow. You do not correct that. <laughs> you, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you are down to a bean, my friend. <laughs> oh, rookie mistake. But it is. It's MC. It's Mick. It's not Mac. That is a function of immigration to North Carolina, actually, by the McLeans. We used to have an A in front, but then it's been shortened. This is starting to bore me. Me too, but he <laughs> took out the A from McLean and ended up with McCormick. I would like to suggest that it wasn't us who did that. Great. All right. You're down to a bean, so I'd be careful from here forward. All right. So, Greg, using your logic for the three lines is Ethan is going to open us. He will be the opening line. You will be mm -hmm. the closing line because you're able to bring it all home. And I guess I'm the middle one because I talk so much. Why does your line always have to be bigger than everybody else's, Patrick? Remember Compensation Club with <laughs> Knuckles and the Corvette? First rule of Compensation Club is you don't talk about Compensation Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. I think we should open with some readings. So my contribution to today's episode, other than being head bean counter for Ethan, mm -hmm. I will play a ceremonial meditation gong to introduce oh. each set of haiku that we're going to read. Our first haiku comes from Veronica Oro. Latent A-C-E, parsing variants of traits into G and E. Oh, nice. Hmm. Jennifer Summers, moment to moment, variability in, emotion varies. Yes, it does. Cyril Forestier, type one and type two, estimated, never known, errors come and go. Oh. I hope at the very least our listeners got a sense of how each of the three lines work together in each of those parsimonious storytellings, because that's really what a haiku is, which reminds us again of this episode, which will have a back theme of team science. Patrick and I know a ton, a ton of about not just team science, but the science of team science. Correct, Patrick? Um, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> oh, crap. So here's, here's the thing about team science. 
There's a whole discipline of team science. If you use some of Ethan's extensive research techniques and Google team science, you will find a vast literature emerging in business, in medicine, really quite a lot in the field of medicine about how teams can work together most efficiently, most effectively toward particular goals. I was not raised as a team science guy, and yet I find myself doing what one would characterize as team science all the time. You Googled this. So you are clearly well prepared. What do we mean by team science just to begin with? How can we think of that as different from, say, collaboration? Because you can argue that, of course, there's an underlying continuum ranging from the moody loner in their Montana cabin (laughs) up to the particle accelerators in England. But... By the way, I've written some of my best papers in my cabin in Montana. And I don't believe there are any particle accelerators in England, but that's okay. Where's the big one? Switzerland. (laughs) Switzerland is very close to England geographically. And so in a Mm -hmm. sense, Patrick is correct. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Pandering doesn't play well for the home crowd. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. You are a moron. (laughs) (laughs) Would you put a bean back in the pile, Patrick? (laughs) You're right, Greg. You and I came up through a system back in the day where it wasn't anti-team science, but it certainly, in my own experience with it, was not a valued component of how you do research. It was all about independence. I had told on a previous episode about how one of the concerns that my chair had when I came up for tenure is I didn't have any sole authors. They were Mm -hmm. all joint authorship, even though I had a bunch of first authors, none were solo. And he was worried that I wasn't demonstrating that I was wholly independent. I came up also through clinical training, and it was interesting because it was under what's called the Boulder model. All right. So for you clinicians who are out there, you're familiar with this. But in the 70s, they had a big conference in Boulder, Colorado. I assume lots of marijuana was smoked and walks were taken with black Labrador retrievers with handkerchiefs tied around their necks. (laughs) What it was laid out there is we would pursue what was called a scientist practitioner approach to clinical psychology and that any individual was equally proficient as a scientist and as a practitioner. And over a 30-year period, I kind of shake my head at that because I don't feel like I even can be proficient as a scientist because the field has become so specialized, we start having certain very narrow band skills, even within the science part of that, that precludes us from being a one-person show. Whenever I had a publication that involved two people or three people, what I was told was, well, you really should be the person out in front of that. So I ran into the same thing that you ran into. So Ethan, from the windswept plains of Arkansas, what was your experience that brought you into academia? Well, fortunately, the the wind stops at the Oklahoma-Arkansas border, but... I come from a slightly different background in neuroscience where there's a first and senior author format. And so there's not quite as much competition um, with your advisor to be first. But I would say that in the beginning, most of my publications were me and my advisor or one other person sort of in the middle. Even just in the six years since I started my PhD, the rise of multi-author publications has become really popular, especially in the neurosciences where you're collaborating with people across institutions or you have a a multi-member team within your own lab. I have a definition of team science that I'd like to read and then see if we can pick it apart and come back to some of the things that Patrick said. Team science leverages the strengths and expertise of professionals trained in different fields in an integrated and collaborative effort to address a shared scientific challenge. Any reaction to that? When you read about this stuff, I have seen people talk about differentiating team science from collaboration. Yes. And I think that's an interesting distinction. I view collaboration as almost more sharing of workload. All right, I'll do this part, you do that part, and then we'll get back together Monday and we'll talk about it. The team science is, for lack of a better term as I think about it myself, is there's a certain synthesis and interaction that group is more than the sum of the individuals, that when 
you're brought together, the unique combination of skills allow you to do something that individuals couldn't do on their own. So a collaboration is I could do the paper on my own. It's fun giving you guys a hard time. It's fun dividing up the work, but any one of us could do it on our own if we wanted to. So we're going to collaborate because there's more enjoyment in that. But in the team science, we couldn't. That's how I view the real distinction between collaboration and team science, is the group in team science can do something more than the individuals could do on their own. I think there's a lot of value in stuff that is not team science, right? So when you said you could do it on your own, I think it's important for advisors to share workload with their mentees, to try to help the mentees to gain these skills. So there are a lot of reasons why you might be doing something collaborative that isn't team science, and it has tremendous value. So for me, the value of something doesn't automatically go up because it is team science. Some research questions don't lend themselves to team science. I second that very strongly. Obviously, team science is a huge new positive area that we're moving as a field. The Moody Loner in Montana can do really important work. And if you're not part of a team in team science does not mean you're not participating in unique contributions to the field. I've been on some grant review panels at NIH where eyebrows have been raised if there are not a team of 11 people on the application. And I keep gently saying, but they've got the skill set to meet the aims that they've set forth. It's not about team science for the sake of team science. It would be team science for the sake of the science that you're doing. And not all science lends itself to that. Ethan, you're maybe a couple of years younger than Greg and I. Hmm. When you came up through the system, did anybody talk to you about team science or did you just kind of do your thing with whoever was around? Probably more the latter. In neuroscience, a lot of the team science comes in more on the data collection side of things. So for instance, there are a bunch of NIH initiatives to gather really large data sets rather than the 20 or 30 people that you might typically get in a neuroscience study. And those are Mm. done collaboratively across multiple sites. On the analysis end, I still think we're in the one or two labs collaboration space more than the team science space. Mm -hmm. But I would say that our grants are very much the, we have an advisory board of 11 people. There's a committee driving the ship. In your training, nobody talked to you about what is team science? What is the science of team science? Not All right, good. That's consistent with all training is we're not going to teach you what we expect you to know, but we expect you to get it somehow. And then we will be deeply disappointed if you don't have that. Exactly. We were told multi-site collaborations are becoming more and more the norm. Good luck. Excellent. Is this the Carolina model? That is the Carolina way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Monique Yoder. Click our studio. Set working directory, select data file. Very practical. Amanda Lindqvist, let me show you if that model of yours can be logarithmic, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to file a formal complaint that the yeah was a filler. Mm -hmm. Brendan Lamb, hard to say goodbye, but I can't turn a blind eye. Manova must die. (laughs) Yes! Yes! You know that a podcast has reached its highest form when it is in haiku. Quick question. Yes. Have you guys talked about Manova? (laughs) (laughs) And there goes a bean. There are two by Tim Hayes in the next block, and we used Tim Hayes's yet a multi-level one in the last episode that we used as a teaser for this. Tim Hayes submitted was probably like 20 of these. Mm -hmm. It was very hard to choose among all of them, but I threw in two here. So go ahead and do this block. Does Tim have a day job? No, he does not, apparently. Is Tim open to an unpaid internship? (laughs) Hey, now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sorry. Tim Hayes. Back off. (laughs) Little's MCAR test tells you what you want to hear, but never listen. Hmm. Also, Tim Hayes, all models are wrong, except for your new model. That one is special. (laughs) I like that. Kathleen Oppenheimer, measurement and stats, 
No susquiptil. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we <laughs> sidebar. Um, <laughs> so, so, I know what's happening ahead. Like what? Did you sound, sound it out? <laughs> big word. <laughs> A big so word is sad. nothing more than little words standing <laughs> close to each other. Measurement and stats. So sesquipedalian. Not great for haikus. Very nice. Could I be the guy who asks, what is that word? I've never heard of that before. I think it means like multisyllabic. You're also going to have to define that for him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it means, it means sesquipedalian. <laughs> And we have completed the dad joke circle. Yeah. Uh-huh. Characterized by long words, long-winded. Oh, I could have that printed on a t-shirt for <laughs> me. For your tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> so with regard to team science, I think some of the points that we've made so far is that good science can be done without being part of a team. Uh, and things that are done with multiple people aren't necessarily team science, right? It can be for other particular mm-hmm. purposes. That team science, I think one of the key elements is that it really is pulling together people who serve functions that complement each other. It leverages the strength and expertise of professionals trained in different fields. And I think that's how you and I get drawn into these teams. I think you're raising a really important issue here, and I think it relates to how team science often works for quanti-like people. If you are quanti and have certain skills, you often are drawn into these kind of projects to check a box. Mm-hmm. We need a growth modeler, or we need a network analyst, or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that that is not a unique contribution to the team of the team science, But a number of years ago, my wife hit it on the head when I was grousing about I was in a particular thing and I felt like they would bring me out when they needed some quant thing and send me back when they were done. And she looked up from dinner and she said, well, you're the Xerox repairman. And I was like, (laughs) what? And she said, well, you have a set (laughs) of skills. When the Xerox machine is running, you're not needed. But Mm -hmm. when it breaks down, you get an emergency call to go fix the Xerox machine. And when it's fixed, then they don't need you anymore. And I thought that was the most wonderful characterization of don't bring somebody on as a Xerox repairman. Bring them on as a part of an integrated team that is each contributing in their own way to the broader goals of the team. So I have lived that thing that you just described many, many times to the point where I've helped create a grant proposal. I have helped see it through to funding. I have helped provide training for postdocs and doctoral students who are on that. And then I've been shown the door. I've been written into grants for summer funding, academic year funding. And when the budgets had to change, I've been dismissed because hey, team player, we don't actually need you anymore. You've laid things out for us pretty well. We'll take it from here. So the repair person here has been fired on a number of occasions. I think you're right. There's a fine line between being that repair person and being an integrated part of the team. I think that there is a very clear team role for us. Whether or not we are allowed to fully realize that team role is another issue. I had an interesting experience for a lot of years. I was program director for the quant area here at Carolina, and we have six PhD granting areas. So there's six of us, and then the director of graduate studies oversees us all. And the chair of the department met with provost for the week, and he came out of the business school. And he charged all academic units with this business-oriented kind of task of defining a mission statement. Mm -hmm and a vision statement, and a five-year plan. And this got handed to the chair, who handed it to the director of graduate studies, who handed it to us. Going into it, I thought it was just a fool's errand. What is our one-sentence mission, and what is our one-sentence vision? And I got to tell you, I went in with a horrible attitude. And we were like, all right, let's knock this out. We're all busy. We got stuff to do. Within the first five minutes, not one of us had the same view of what the mission of the Department of Psychology was. Hmm. We all had a different perspective on why we even existed. And the whole process actually turned into a very cool string of meetings which is why do we exist? What do we hope to achieve in this vision statement? Where are we going as a field? 
and having some shared view of this. And I was a complete convert by the end of this, as I thought it was incredibly important that as a department, we have a single sentence that we all agree on why we exist and where we're going. Why I'm prattling on is I think that's critically important in this team science-like setting as well. And to not just have a batting order of we have a network analyst, we have an fMRI person, we have this, we have this, we have this, we have this, Mm -hmm. is forming a group and having a shared mission and having a shared vision of why do we exist and where are we going and all key members are a part of that. I would tack on to that, that you can actually accomplish more because of the construction that you have in terms of your faculty. Persons X and Y can actually accomplish things that are in that overlap between their worlds. I hate the specialist view of things. APA has something like 54 different divisions. American Educational Research Association, to which I have belonged since time immemorial, has burgeoned to 150 plus special interest groups. Yes, it's important to have conversations with people who do things that are like what you do. I think the best things come from having conversations with people who only sort of overlap with what you do. I couldn't agree with you more on the increasing divisions within all of our fields. There are days where I feel like we're subdividing ourselves out of existence. Mm-hmm. But pulling back to the group is greater than the sum of its parts is, I think part of that is having the mission vision that's all shared. The other part, though, is the term I like that I've seen before is you need a prenuptial agreement. One of the hallmarks of a successful team science is there are very clearly stated expectations and policies and processes set up right out of the gate. What is that mission and vision? What is the leadership structure? What is the publication structure? What is the policy for conflict resolution? When I was a young faculty, I was freaking intolerable in terms of, well, many, many terms. Hmm. But let me try to narrow it down. Would you? I was intolerable in terms of my disdain for policies. And I was like, we've got to be quick. we got to be flexible. We have to run a zone defense where Mm. we don't know what's going to come across and all that. An hour and a half into my first administrative position, I was like, oh, for the love of God, where's the policy on this? (laughs) I have become a huge adherent to policies. And not that it's a Byzantine rigidity, but everybody needs to know the rules of the game of what they're getting into. And if Ethan has an idea for a paper in this group that he's working on, that there should be a form where Ethan fills it out, has a working title, what data is he going to draw, who are the people who are going to be involved, how is this going to uniquely contribute, And the team leaders sign off on that so that Ethan doesn't do 100 hours of work and Mm -hmm. distribute a draft and doctor whoever says, no, this is my topic. Mm -hmm. I put those measures on the battery. No, 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 you can't do it. So mission, vision, prenuptial. I would say that that point is especially important for early career people, people who may be coming out into the team, either who are younger or from outside the institution or whatever it is. The worst position one is ever in, i.e. your dissertation, is when you, the graduate student who has zero control, has to wrangle five fully tenured faculty members whose dates are not going to line up. You've sent the fifth doodle Having those sorts of rules and policies up front is a great framework to be like, hey, you remember we all agreed to this. You're not allowed to change your mind 100 hours in. You and I, Ethan, are working on a project and we met at the picnic shelter over in my neighborhood a week ago. You told me how you were simulating this very, very complicated data. And I took out my fountain pen and my clipboard (laughs) and I said, well, here's how I would do it. And I wrote out step one and some equations and step two and this and step three and this and said, if I were doing this, this is how I would do it. And you said, well, that's how I initially did it, but you told me to do it this way. (laughs) Welcome, Ethan. (laughs) In the interest of my current employment, I don't remember it being like that. I think I said... (laughs) 
I really want to thank you for the opportunity that you gave me uh-huh. to learn a different way of generating the data consistent with the underlying equations that characterize structural equation modeling. Greg, I'm liking this kid. That was pretty good. And here we have one that does a clever take on the form by Wes Bonifay. The model says five first, then seven, then five again, right? Oh, well, close fit is fine. Wait a minute. Ethan has a Cheshire cat grin right now. Read it again, Ethan, and I'm going to hold up fingers. Slowly for the old men in the balcony. (laughs) What? (laughs) The model says five first, then seven, then five again, right? Oh, well, close fit is fine. Okay, I get okay, it. Okay, I get, I get it, it too. I get six, it. Six, eight, okay. and six. Very nice. <laughs> All right. And who says that quantitative training doesn't come in handy? <laughs> Daniel Whiting. There will be times where a group sex interaction <laughs> is the right answer. <laughs> For new listeners. <laughs> pause is the really important part. <laughs> yeah. Greg told this story on a prior episode about a group sex interaction during class. Yes, good <laughs> reference. Yeah, so Limbrick episode from last year, if anybody wants to complete the circle there. And now a thoughtful contribution by TurboGut. Structuring my thoughts, building models of nature, press run, see no fit. A sad commentary. <laughs> Ileana Samara. Pre-registration, cannot replicate effects. Oh, what a bummer. (laughs) You see the influences, Chaucer, Keats. (laughs) All I remember is somebody got poked in the arse with a hot poker in Chaucer. As a middle school boy, that's the only thing I remember. Ladies and gentlemen, an (laughs) in-depth review of Patrick Curran's psyche. And now two thoughtful contributions by Laura Stapleton. The first, non-invariant. In other words, not the same. Why such word use? Why? (laughs) (laughs) The second, waiting for Tuesdays. Greg, Patrick, want friends to hear, but please, not Jiffy. Uh... (laughs) I'm willing to admit that Jiffy is an acquired taste. Excuse me, I've been listening in the green room to the entire episode, and I think it's great and all that you need an errand boy. This is the way I have to find out? Come on, we've been through so much. I got blown off a roof by a helicopter. That's not cool, gentlemen. It's not cool. We have a green room? We- <laughs> Wait, am I the only one seeing this? <laughs> Ethan... Greg thinks it's real. Just go with it. So, <laughs> let's just see how qualified. Um, Evan, is that it, Evan? Ethan. Whatever. I have an interview question for our guest here. May I? Sure. You may, Jiffy, but remember, be kind to Evan. Ethan. Ethan. <laughs> All right, Ethan. The Soundcraft VI3000 96 channel compact digital mixer, how many faders does it have? 36. That had to hurt. All right. Evan, on behalf of Quantitude, we apologize. It's Ethan. Ethan, on behalf of Quantitude, we apologize for (laughs) several things. First, that was unanticipated. Second, I really didn't know that we had a green room. And third, (laughs) do we have a digital mixer? Because we've been doing this like on our iPhone. (laughs) I don't know what he's using, but but I got to check out the green room. Dang. All right. Team science. Ethan, here's something to loop you in, and I'm curious about your opinion on this. I see one of the dual risk and positive things about a team science setting is first, if done properly, can be an amazing training ground for junior people. But in that training ground, it is also a remarkable opportunity for junior people to be walked on, to be used for grunt work, and then to be given an authorship and where your 
18 of 21. This goes into the prenuptial, as you need very clear expectations about this, but I think that's also a real risk is realizing that junior people need to build their CV, they need to prepare themselves for promotion and tenure. Ethan, what has your experience been as a junior person coming up through the farm club? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. Team science, just like individual or you know lab-based science, doesn't really save you from bad management. But it does, in some ways, expose, I think, junior people, also people maybe who come from more underrepresented backgrounds who maybe don't have as much familiarity with the system would also be in this category. You can end up putting a lot of work where you're third, fourth, fifth, author on a project, and you may not necessarily know how to advocate for yourself in that context, but also you may worry that advocating for yourself is going to get you labeled either implicitly or explicitly as a not a team player, uncooperative. Mm -hmm. And so I think there really is a fine line somewhere between being part of team science, getting the wonderful training opportunities, getting exposure to other researchers, other institutions, other ways of doing things, And being brought on as this is a person who knows how to do X, Y, or Z, or who can do our lit review for us. And we're going to shove them somewhere in the middle of the author lineup, irrespective of the time that they're going to spend. But on the back end, we're still going to evaluate them on things like first authorship. Mm -hmm. How many projects did you take the lead on? I myself have gotten some of this feedback. Other people that I know have gotten feedback is if your CV has a lot of these, you're the middle author, or there's a variety of topics Often comments are, where is your independent contribution? Your CV looks somewhat unfocused. There are many different topics. It is sort of a catch-22, I think, for younger researchers. Like many movements in the field, open science, pre-registration, other things like that, where we really do buy into these advances in the field. We want to do science better. We drank the Kool-Aid, right? Mm -hmm. But the official structures that exist that we're being brought up in still haven't fully accommodated those. We're left somewhat of, do you choose to be less open or less collaborative or less team-based? Or do you accept the fact that you're going to get dinged for that later on because you've not published sole authors or you and your advisor author type papers? That being said, a lot of times... I think you don't necessarily have a choice when your advisor says, Mm. I think you would be excellent to work on this project. You maybe don't know to say, oh, I'm not sure that that's a great use of my time, or sometimes you're getting voluntold. (laughs) (laughs) I might be the cheese standing alone on this one, but I do think that it's a danger to not be able to establish yourself by always being sort of this middle of the pack kind of person. First, did you say cheese? That you were the lone <laughs> cheese? Yeah, the cheese stands alone. Gromit, fancy it, cheese. We'll go somewhere where there's cheese. Have you, that's not a phrase that they had in Colorado? What kind of Maryland phrase is that? No, it's not a Maryland phrase. It's I think it's from the farmer in the dell. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the... Hi-ho, the dario, the farmer in... Nothing. I recognize the song I'm waiting for. Okay. The cheese stands alone. The cheese yes. stands alone. <laughs> That's it. The cheese stands alone. The cheese stands alone. Hi ho, the dairy. Oh, the cheese stands alone. There's such individual variability in how you can participate in the field of the sciences that we're in is some people, that is their sweet spot, right? As they have a set of skills, they like being part of a group, Mm -hmm. they have unique and novel contributions, and they live in the middle part of the author order. And there are other people who want to go through the farm club like that and get those skills, but then move to the head table where they're part of a leadership team where they have their own independent program of research. I think it's absolutely critical that a given individual is able to identify what role do they want and what Mm -hmm. are they doing to put themselves in that position. What I just find so dangerous is we all wax poetic about team science, but then say, but Ethan hasn't had a PI on an R01. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are dual mandates that often conflict with one another. I think part of it is on the junior person to say, all right, what do you want to be when you grow up and make sure that you make certain decisions to help you get there. But I think part of it is on the existing leadership. You know, we can't require team science and then ding Ethan because he doesn't have a PI. 
there's a lot of value in the things that you said, which believe me, I'm the most shocked here among I, us. I hear you. It sounds like, A, that you are serving in a good mentorship capacity for Ethan. Hmm. Um, yeah. But B, the idea that what you want to be should drive the kind of position that you get. And if it is the case that you like being a part of these dynamic teams with different roles, with projects changing all the time, that is often not an academic environment, right? That is in one of the many places, increasing numbers of places. But I do agree with the fact that if you have aspirations for yourself at a higher level, you do have to find a way to balance the role of being a team player, but also establishing yourself as a leader. But I would also say that I think it's the job also of a PI to have those thoughts in mind for the people that they're advising, especially early on. It can be difficult just to know what you want to be when you grow up. Yes. Even more so, it's hard to advocate for yourself when someone says, hey, we have this project we'd like you to work on because you can do structural equation modeling. It's hard to turn that down when you're in your third year working on comps. The power differential is huge, and it can, on occasion, be used in a volitional or malicious way. A lot of times, I think it's almost accidental. We forget that we're now in charge. I still feel like a junior person. I really genuinely do. I still (laughs) feel like a junior person, and I forget Mm -hmm. that, Ethan, when I email you and say, would you mind doing this, is... I'm kind of thinking like, oh, it's Ethan, it's fun, we're doing this together, but I forget that there's a huge power differential between the two of us, and I genuinely forget that. I try to be constantly aware of how much more power I have than you (laughs) by sending your emails directly to junk (laughs) at all times. (laughs) To be serious for just a second, I graduated in 2020, Mm -hmm. I defended my dissertation two weeks before lockdown, that's fine. (laughs) My celebratory trip had to come back from that. That's fine. <laughs> now, one of the biggest things for me is remembering that, oh, right, I am Dr. McCormick now. Mm. And that I'm allowed to say yes and no to certain things. It's part of growing up, becoming a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a transition point going from, oh, you sat on my dissertation and lobbed such wonderful questions my direction to now I can just tell you to <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, Yeah. there we go. Put some beans back in that pile. Uh, Beans are going back in the pile. And for (laughs) listeners, going back to the picnic table, when I told him how I would have done it, the string of profanities that I received in response to that... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the gone. Evan? (laughs) Ernest? I mean, Dr. McCormick. Tom Roth, complex random terms, boundary singular fit, drop the random slopes. (laughs) Teague Henry, raw data folders, same study, all different. Who did this? Send help. (laughs) And now we have an audio recording of a reading by Evan Hughes. Ran Mayanova, got three-way interaction have to describe (laughs) nice use of the bleep by evan hughes that was very clever did that count as a syllable it did the bleep was one well that was pretty amazing (laughs) see buddy i can do it too snaps for patrick (laughs) oh we should have been doing that the whole time like poet oh greg next year poetry (laughs) slam (laughs) oh god I thought you were about to be like, when you're a jet, you're a jet. (laughs) From your first cigarette to your last dying day. No, I was thinking, degrees of freedom, man, number of impositions on your parameter, space. Patrick at a slam poetry would just have people like backing really slowly away. (laughs) There's a lot of spittle. I know. I'm sorry about that. I get very excited. About degrees of freedom. Jeff Green, person-centered stats still use variables, so why are they special? (laughs) Tim Hayes, in response to Jeff Green, they are not special. They have never been special. (laughs) Keep going. This is how it should be read. (laughs) Let's stop saying this. (laughs) 
I apologize to Tim Hayes. Ugh, Jiffy. <laughs> this is awkward. Yeah, let's hear your best Jiffy voice. Yeah, this is part of the interview. You have to yeah. read it as Jiffy. <laughs> I wrote a haiku. <laughs> I just wanted to share it. What do you guys think? And scene. That was the worst <laughs> Jiffy impersonation I've ever heard. Bye, Patrick. <laughs> My name is Patrick. <laughs> Some of you seem to have forgotten that I can hear you in the green room. Oh, wow. With the squirrel monkey in the green room, please shut up. <laughs> This isn't, this isn't going to work. <laughs> At least I have two eyes. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Caitlin Uverson. Data are, not is. In methods, quant, qual, and mixed. Oh, and it's Likert. Likert. No! <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> Angela Staples. Which model? Depends. Linear, latent, or both. Reaper must be paid. That's for you, Patrick. <laughs> Willa Van Dyke. On Hell's Half Acre, Fisher left his legacy. Split plot ANOVA. <laughs> Johnny Felt. Small sample size, ugh. Do I have prior knowledge? Time for Bayesian. <laughs> and now an audio recording by Katie Mintz. Autoregressive, surprisingly, is not a Freudian model. <laughs> Kira McCabe, prudent researchers never underestimate data management. <laughs> Let me add something. Kira also sent a limerick a year <laughs> a year late. Um, <laughs> so bless her. And I would have read it if it wouldn't have required some serious bleeping. Uh, so let's just say thank you, Kira, for the one year late limerick. It was very good. William Mentor. Structural models. What do they predict? Thank God. For machine learning. <laughs> but they don't explain anything. Neil Hester. Missing at random or completely at random. Damn it. These names suck. <laughs> Well, getting back to team science, as those haiku remind me to do, I will say that there's a really difficult aspect of participating in teams. You are participating in things that, quite honestly, you don't have control over all aspects of it. And, and I'll just use as a metaphor a final document that gets produced, right? It's obviously much more than a document. But there are parts of that document that you haven't written. There are parts of that document you might not even agree with. But you have to have this team buy-in. You have to be willing to abdicate some control in the larger mission. And that can be difficult, right? When your name is being attached to things that you aren't directly a part of. Recently, I've been on a couple of papers where I was part of a team. I love it. It's a great group. I feel like I'm part of a bigger whole. All all of the good things. Mm -hmm. But it was a weird experience because I'm a co-author on a paper that there are parts of it I don't understand. Not that I don't agree with. It was the first time in a very long time that I put my name on something that I didn't fully understand myself. That was really uncomfortable for me. Let me take that a step further. What if you did understand it, but you didn't agree with it? I am at a point in my career where I can, without consequence, remove myself from an mm -hmm. author list. I have that luxury. I think it would be much more awkward if it were a more junior person. I have done that as well, but I'm also softening about what I feel the need to go to the mat over. There are some things where I might say, do I think it's going to make that big a difference? No. Do I think it's 100% the right thing to do? No. But I have to have these dialogues. And sometimes I just say, well, that's part of what it means to be in a relationship with other people. You don't always get your way. If I think something is fundamentally wrong and jeopardizes the science, then I will probably pull myself. But it's a conversation I have for sure. Well, a big part that I think, and this comes up in all of the science of team science, 
is maybe the most important component of any effective team is trust. That is a foundational concept in everything that we're talking about, is trust in the group, trust in the mission, trust in the vision. What I would think is if it's set up properly and if it's managed properly, you would never be in that position. This issue of trust comes up a lot in integrative data analysis kinds of Mm -hmm. applications, and I have a lot of experience with that over the last 10 or 15 years. It goes toward, again, this belief in a shared mission. Mm -hmm. And if Ethan has a data set and I have a data set and you have a data set and we're working collaboratively, it is not going to be successful if Ethan still thinks it's his data and you think that it's still your data. You know what it makes me think of is we've that I've had some long hair rock and roll days through Van Halen and others. And another one, and I'm deeply embarrassed by this, is I own Guns N' Roses albums. One of my favorite is Welcome to the Jungle. There's a line in there that I love. You can have anything you want. You just better not take it from me. Uh And to me, I think that highlights a lot of this is welcome to the jungle. You can have anything that you want. You just better not take it from me. And that goes to the trust and that goes to that shared mission and vision. We're not stringing intellectual barbed wire, but we really are committed to the bigger whole. And that's guns and roses, you said? It's N. Welcome to the jungle. It's all fun and games. Oh, God, make him stop. (laughs) My Axl Rose impersonation was better than your Jiffy impersonation. (laughs) One final point I have on this, and not everyone shares this view, but it's something that I fairly strongly believe You need an effective leadership team, and you need an unambiguously identified leader, whether that be an individual or a very small group of individuals. I have been part of projects that have proudly proclaimed they are a leaderless team, that everyone has an equal voice and that they will do this through consensus, and I see that as a cat rodeo. Even if you have a leadership team, it doesn't have to be the same person who's a leader all the time, but everybody needs to know at a particular point who is making the calls. There's a really nice quote from the movie about Steve Jobs. I think it's slightly apocryphal quote, but I think it's beautiful. Steve Wozniak in this dialogue is asking him what Steve Jobs actually does. You can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. What do you do? I play the orchestra. And I think you need someone in these kinds of roles who, yes, they play an instrument in the band, but they're also someone who is able to have broader oversight, to keep things moving in a forward kind of direction. Yeah, someone to make those hard decisions like, hey, we're all working on a workshop together and it's going to be a lot of time and energy, but you know what? We're not going to let you sit in on it or TA it or contribute to the actual forward-facing side of the thing. Something like that. Wow. That was unexpected. <laughs> hmm. So to give this some context, Evan is not wrong. Ethan. Ethan is not wrong. It's Evan. It is. Just... You're just going to go to Evan. So Greg and I foolishly agreed, right? When was this? It was like in the fall when we had all the time in the world. We are preparing a workshop on measurement modeling. And Ethan is playing a critical role in helping us prepare the class, doing analyses, making graphics, doing all sorts of interesting things. Opening R, which Patrick (laughs) cannot do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is true that he's putting blood, sweat, and tears in. But Greg's grad student is going to be the TA for the class, not Ethan. (laughs) I think that makes my point, is only a competent, empowered leadership team would make a decision like that. Like Caesar. Leadership dictatorship. (laughs) These are all semantic. (laughs) It is very exciting to be working on this with both of you, Evan. I think you've made valuable contributions. To what we're doing. And it's a lot of fun. Like telling Patrick that I can output PNGs instead of taking screenshots of the R Markdown PDF that I send him. What I heard was. 
But for those of you who are interested, since we stumbled into this minefield anyway, when is it? May? I don't know. May 24th? It's the very, it's very near the end yeah, of May. May. May 24th is Greg and I are co-teaching a live streaming five-day workshop on measurement. Yeah, applied measurement modeling, I think it's called. Everything you wanted to know about factor analysis, scoring, invariance, and us giving each other a hard time for five days straight mm-hmm. without Ethan. Oh, yeah. And in fairness to us, Ethan was recruited out from under me to TA for another class with Bauer and Doug Steinley. So it was not my doing. <laughs> if you're foolish enough to be interested is go to centerstat.org and we have information on that. But yes, Ethan, I think that that is a wonderful example of an effective leadership team in a team science setting, which is we're going to suck you dry for everything that you have and then send you on your way with nothing in return. Isn't that kind of what the point of this episode is? I think so. I think that's right. I think that sums it up nicely. I I, I was going to do some big, you know, summary statement, but I think you hit it no, just perfectly. Ethan is an intellectual crazen. <laughs> I, I got a PhD. I don't know why I have to f- put up with this. It's just so f- just, Dude, you're not on mute. I hear you. Just, just go work for Google or something. You don't have to put up with these apps. We can hear you. <laughs> I think we should go out maybe with some haikus. Would that be okay? Oh, nice. Yeah. Wait, let me get the gong to get us centered. If I may just preface this last block of haiku or haiku, which we have failed to use throughout the episode. Chris Preacher, for many years, has asked students in his class, I think it might be his multi-level class, to write quantitative haikus, and he's got dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I plucked a couple out here. The first two will have come from that pile. So, Ethan, if you would. By Brian J. Cole, submitted care of David Cole. Little p-value, how can something so tiny be significant? By Mark Lehowitz, two birds leave the nest and live their lives unaware. They're always nested. (laughs) Nice. We have one more, though. Patrick, I think this is a special one for you as well. And maybe this one could take us out. We all three want to thank everybody for submitting their haikus. It was so wonderful to read these, and there were a ton of really good ones. And we apologize if we weren't able to read them. We could only pick a subset. But thank you so much for submitting these. And just in general for being with us through all of the stuff that we do, the silliness, the seriousness. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to Ethan. Ethan, is there anything else at the end of this interview that you would like to share with us that you would think help us in our decision-making process? I mean, if you haven't noticed how much crap I put up with from the two of you by now, (laughs) I'm not going to get this job. That's a strong Mm. finish, Ethan. That's a Mm. very strong finish. By Tate Hancock. Hi, this is Tate Hancock. I've been trying to listen to season two of the podcast. It has inspired me to submit a haiku. Piano theme song? Um, it's great, but maybe a season three duet. You know you missed the saxophone. Hey, Christy. Sorry to interrupt piano practice. Do you mind if I record real quick while you're practicing? Uh, yeah, what for? Uh, it's just a project I'm working on. Just trust me. Okay. All right, I'm going to leave this here. Play whatever you want. I'll be back. Thanks, everybody. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your slam poetry podcasts, and please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch for Mother's Day at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, 
a podcast described as minimally tolerable by four out of five Ethans polled. Quantitude is brought to you by pop-up email notifications, letting you know when a student emails you in the middle of a Zoom research talk that you are both attending at that very same moment. By Hollow Threats, applying the highly effective parenting strategy within the classroom, where end-of-class projects are described in detail in the syllabus, only to be canceled in the last two weeks of the semester because you really don't want to grade them, while at the same time making you look like a caring human being for reducing student stress. And by Applied Measurement Modeling, a workshop taught by Hancock and Curran that is based on exactly the same premise as The Simpsons movie. I can't believe we're paying. It's something we get on TV for free. This is most definitely not NPR. What are your cultural impressions of a talking lemur? Is this something that you would accept? I don't know. Does it look a lot like Greg? You surprisingly, it does. The lemur's a little taller. <laughs> I mean, if it's taller, then that's fine. Yeah, and he doesn't lick his butt quite as much. <laughs> I had two vertebrae removed to be able to do that. <laughs> it was elective. Um... Let's hear it for Obamacare, huh? <laughs> All right, so we need to get out of this hole. <laughs> oh, That's the worst God. segue ever. <laughs> the beauty is, is that was completely unintentional. You are not editing this episode. <laughs> off it don't that's not going in okay oh, all right <clears throat> so so <laughs> get us out of here all right <clears throat> we're all going to hell i told you ethan i promised look i'm part of the welcome committee yeah <laughs>